sermon is brought to you by Shofar East London. Together, living out the fullness of Christ. We hope you enjoy this message. Thank you, Andre. It's, uh, it's a huge privilege to be with you this morning. And thank you for inviting me. Um, I bring greetings uh, from Franschhoek. And uh, I know that Andre thinks that the most beautiful woman in the world lives in East London. And it's good he must think that. But I want to humbly suggest that she actually lives in Franschhoek and that her name's Jolene. She's my wife. And uh, Jolene's holding the fort back in Franschhoek this morning. There she is with uh, Christina. I've got two redheads in my family. Uh, so you'll pray for me afterwards. Um, <laughs> the, the little one, if you want to know who, who dominates and rules the house, it's, it's the smallest one. She's the life of the party, and uh, we weren't quite ready for, for what she represents, but she is a massive blessing to, to our family. Then the middle one there, Margaret, she's four years, four years old now. Uh, everybody says, says Papa, um, but she's a fantastic little girl, future worship leader in Jesus' name. Amen. And then... Uh, the eldest, young William, we call him our champion, and uh, I must just tell you the story behind that photo. So earlier this year, um, we actually had a conference at our at our church, and we had uh, a couple, Derek and and Beryl Puffett from LL Ministries, and they they were ministering at at our church, and it was quite an important weekend for our our church and our our church family, and. Um, Jolene had um, gotten a call earlier that week from William's extra maths teacher. Now, William doesn't do extra maths because he, he needs lessons. He enjoys maths. So they suggested that he kind of does more advanced maths. And we thought, oh, you know, that's, that's good. You know, knock yourself out to the maths, uh, William, if that's what you like. You know, I, I played ball sports. Uh, he, he's doing maths. Um, but in any case, <laughs> so, um, so, you know... We get the call, and she says, you know, really, is it necessary that he comes? You know, surely should kids, kids be competing in maths competitions? She says, just let him come. So, uh, so he goes to this, this maths competition, and now Jolene says, you need to come for the prize giving. All the parents need to be there for the prize giving. I'm saying, I'm hosting this couple, and we're doing deliverance this week, and it's, it's more important. And, uh, it, you know, it was big and eventually I realized, okay, I need to choose my family first. That's what a pastor does. Um, and so I leave this intense counseling, this kind of encounter three, encounter four type environment, and I chase through from Franschuk to Stellenbosch, and I arrive, and I thought we we're going to be like, I don't know, 30 people or something, you know, at, at a school hall. I arrive, and there's this, this hall, the school hall is packed. It's like over 500 a- a- adults there, the parents, and I'm like, I'm used to rugby and cricket matches. I haven't seen the maths crowd. So this is, you know, this, <laughs> I'm feeling seriously out of my depth. I really struggled with maths at school and like start feeling the anxiety of all those maths exams and like, I don't belong in this crowd, okay? Um, and, but it seems like my son does. Um, and so in any case, I, I go sit way at the back so that, you know, nobody sees me. And so... They start doing this prize giving. Um, but the first prizes go to the teachers for the number of students that they enrolled. And I thought, that's why they got us here. She needs the numbers up. And I'm furious. I'm like, I can't believe we fell for this. And this teacher has got us now to come get her numbers up and to, 
you know, I'm like, well, I hope they've got a prize for every little kid because she's just about to break my kid's heart, you know. You know, I'm sitting there, and I'm like, you know, when's this getting over so I can get back to Franschuk? And they get to my, my son's uh, age group, and they, they, they call up a whole bunch of kids that kind of just get medals. And it gets to the moment where they, they announce the Western Cape champion for 2019 for maths. And they say, William Wade, will you please come up? And I'm like, well, I got up and I started cheering. That's my boy. Yes, yes. You know, we did it. We did it, you know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm like, all of a sudden I'm a fan. And I'm like, you know, on the way home, I'm like to Jolie, we need to, we need to Google like Chinese kids studying maths. We need to expose him to, take him to the east, you know, and... Uh, Ah, we're ridiculous as parents. Anyway, it's a true story. We didn't expect it, but apparently he's good at math. So, so, so praise the Lord. That's the story. But you haven't heard me uh, come to hear me speak about my family. I've actually got a sermon and a message to, to share with you. But before I do that, I just want to uh, say thank you to, to Andre and them. You know, they, uh, they sent a team earlier this year to, to France. We had what we call a Holy Spirit Impact Weekend. And... Um, Man, they came and rocked Franschuk. And we can and we will never be the same again. We, we're not quite where you guys are at, but we get inspired every time we get exposed to any of you. And the amazing thing about it was, it wasn't just Andre and Sonica. It was Stefan and Nastasha. It was Steve and Lynn. It was people that were apparently on their first, second mission. And so the Lord is really raising you guys up here in East London, not just as a light, as a beacon to, to East London, but I believe... You're going to send people like you doing now, like we prayed for this team going to Porch. They're going to turn Porch around. I can tell you now, it had a massive impact on us. So I just want to bless you as a church for releasing your leaders. And I want to say, get ready to release them, and not just them. There are going to be more leaders that are going to be raised up from this church to bless other churches. And we're receiving that. We've seen the fruit of it. You might not know what they're going to do on these weekends. But let me tell you, the Lord is using them to extend His kingdom. So there's a big calling, there's a big vision uh, for leadership in this church and to, and to bless not just East London, uh, to, but, but to bless the nations. Amen? Amen. So I'm wanting to share a, uh, a two-part message with you this morning. I'm preaching this, um, this evening as well. They get value for money when they fly the preachers up here. So I'm bringing the word this morning as well. And uh, I'm wanting to share a message called Ancient Christian Worship. Uh, lessons for today. And the picture that you see up there against the screen is uh, it's a mosaic that's from, it's from Istanbul in one of the churches there called the, the Hagia Sophia. I had the privilege of being there a few years back and just, just beholding the amazing artwork that is over 1,500 years old. And uh, one of my passions, obviously, is worship. You know, I think if you put me on the spot and you say, preach, Something worship-related is bound to, to come out. I think you put Andre on the spot, you know, Holy Spirit's going to come out. The rivers are going to come out. We're still waiting for the river of romance, though, Andre. Uh, but, uh, you, know, you know, we all got a message that we, we kind of carry and uh, something that, that we're passionate about. And what, I think the thing I'm, I've always been passionate about is, is worship. Um, something else I'm passionate about is history. That is my favorite subject at school. Not maths, but history. I was, I was good at history. And so I've had the privilege of, over the last few months, um, just formally studying um, ancient Christian worship. 
And when I say ancient Christian worship, I'm actually talking about the first few decades after Christ, after Christ died. Uh, I've been focusing through, through formal study on, on looking at what, what did that worship look like. And I don't know about you, but I'm one of those guys that likes going back to the blueprint, to the source, to the, to, to the closest picture that we can get of what something looked like. And, um, and so I've been, been asking the Lord, what did ancient Christian wor- what did it look like when they, when they were around Jesus and they worshipped Him and when Jesus died and He rose again? What did that earliest Christian worship look like? What was ancient Christian worship look like? And what can we learn from that? What are the lessons, the implications, the applications for us in 2019? And I think when we think of, of uh, worship these days, we, we generally think of, uh, I think there's this picture, this classic shot. We've, we've got used to this, this raised hand with a photo from the back. You know, I just, I just googled modern worship. And I mean, I just had a whole spread, a whole buffet to choose from of, of images that I could show you. Most of them are in blacked-eyed venues, uh, a stage, a lot of lighting on the stage. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's, that those are all things that the Lord has given us in our day um, to create an environment that's conducive to worship. But, but what did ancient Christian worship look like? And I think you will agree with me that um, 2,000 years ago, you know, there weren't fancy Yamaha sound systems and Roland keyboards and, you know, guitars like we got on stage here. You know, there weren't weren't those things. They didn't have the Bethel bands. They didn't have Hillsong. They didn't have Shofar band. They maybe had the original Shofar band, you know, (laughs) maybe with some Shofars. But but what what did ancient Christian worship look like? And... I think that's what I'm wanting to just share uh, a few thoughts with you this morning around that picture, around that image. And uh, in studying the different kind of the top scholars that have, in essence, dedicated their lives to studying, I'm not talking about 100 or 200 after Christ, I'm talking about the first few decades. They're actually guys that, that dedicate 30, 40 years of scholarship into studying what this looked like. And, and, and I'm wanting to, to share a few of those, those uh, things with you. And they, they've basically said, well, if you look at ancient Christian worship, there were six areas that basically pop up as different aspects of, of the, those worship. And there, there are a couple of questions that also arise around ancient worship. You can, you can just uh, flight those questions. And the first question is, did the earliest Christians worship Jesus? If so, when did this start? How did Jews feel about worshipping Jesus, listen to this, in addition to God? And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because I'm, I'm actually wanting to get to, to what I'm feeling the Lord's laying on my heart. But, but what you must realize about ancient Christian worship is it was within a Jewish environment. Okay, We, we forget Jesus was a Jew. It was within a very, very specific culture, a very specific environment, very specific language being spoken. Um, they speak about Jewish monotheism. So what Jews were known for is the fact they worshipped one God. In comparison and contrast to a polytheistic environment where the Greeks and the Romans were, they had many gods. We were in India earlier at the end of last year. And the one thing that struck me was when I got there, I was just I was blown away by the choice of how many gods they could choose to worship. And you choose, man. If you've got a business, you, you worship the God of money. And if you need health, 
you worship the God that will give you hell. There were thousands of gods that they could choose from. And what we forget is when Jesus was born, he was born into an environment that wasn't what we as, as South Africans experience. We generally understand there's, there's one God. These days we understand the Trinity and the triune God. But, but Jews were born into a culture of there is only one God. And that's what made them different. That in an environment where they were amongst the Gentiles and they were moving around Asia Minor, those were environments where there were many gods. Just read Paul's letters. And so what made Jews different is they proclaimed one God. It's called monotheism. Monotheism. And what we must realize is that Jesus was not the, the Messiah they expected. Just stick with me for two minutes. The messianic expectation of the Jews of that time was a person that would come deliver them from Roman oppression. If you read a bit of what was going on there, their biggest dream was that Israel would rise to the glory that it experienced before. You must remember they had been taken into captivity, into Babylon, into Syria. They had been under years of oppression. The Greeks had ruled them. Eventually, by the time we get to Jesus, they are under serious Roman oppression. And so you will see the, the, the disciples interacting with Jesus. When there's a messianic, messianic expectation, when will the Messiah come? They're expecting a nationalistic leader. They're expecting some guy on a white horse to come and deliver them from Roman oppression. And so they completely miss Jesus. Because Jesus was born on the wrong side of the railway tracks. He's, he's born in, in Nazareth. He's got a Galilean ex accent. He's hanging around with fishermen and sinners. And this cannot be our deliverer. This humble carpenter. This is not, what we, this is not the guy we're expecting on the front pages of our local newspaper as this would be our next president. Rise up and deliver us from Roman oppression. So they completely missed Jesus. And to kind of drive the point home, Jesus goes and dies a death that's reserved for robbers, criminals, people that were completely the lowest part of, of society. Jesus goes and dies that death. And so if he was the Messiah, if he was, that's why they missed him. They did not expect him to go and die that death. The crucifixion. The shameful, embarrassing death that was reserved for people that would go and die outside the city on a hill so that they'd make a public display of you and say, don't be like that person. Jesus certainly was not set up for fame and for popularity. And so just think about this. You're born into a culture like that and you've worshipped the monotheistic God. They had this thing called the Shema. Our God is one God. And all of a sudden, there's this, this Jesus. Yes, he's amazing. He's preaching and he's teaching. He's doing miracles like nobody else. And yes, he's got our attention. But look what happened to him. Now we must worship him. So what we get is 2,000 years later, it's easy to believe in Jesus and to worship him. And to sing songs that have now become mainstream. And we all see, okay, Jesus was the real thing. And Christianity has stuck it out. And now there are 2.5 billion people worshipping Jesus. It's easy to believe in Jesus now. But let's take it back right to the source. When, it was, when you were actually a sect. And nobody believed. 
that you were the Messiah. You said you're the Messiah, but only a few disciples that hung around you actually stuck around with you. So the worship of Jesus did not just explode. It wasn't just there from the beginning. I think a lot of people had to get, okay, we've worshipped one God, and now this man, this man is now also God? We've we got to worship Him like God that we've been worshipping, like our forefathers worshipped in the desert, and we've, we've been sacrificing. Now the carpenter must be exalted to, to God's status? took a while. It took a while for them to understand who Jesus was, who He really said He was, and what the implications were. So, when did it start? A few people got it, but there were a whole, people, whole bunch of people that did not get it. And that's why persecution arose. The Jews were persecuted by the other Jews. They're saying, why are you leaving our thousands of years of tradition, and now together with this one God, you're worshipping Jesus? Some things to think about. Like I said, I, want, I don't want to get stuck, stuck around this. But um, did they sing songs? Did they clap hands? That's what I want to get to this morning. Did they have free worship like we had this morning? And so there's six areas of ancient worship that I'm wanting to touch on this morning. The first one is hymn songs. And when we think of worship today, what do we think about? Singing, music, band, worship leader. That's, that's the thing that, that comes up when we think of worship in 2019. Invocations, declarations, I'm going to get to that in a second. Prophecy, prayer, baptism, communion. These six areas marked the earliest Christian worship. And I don't have time to, to go through all six areas. I've picked two for this morning. I've picked two for, for this evening. And we're going to be focusing on, on hymns and songs to Jesus declarations to Jesus, prophecy, well, I can't teach you much about prophecy. You've got the best pastors here to do that. Prayer, communion, we're going to be focusing on tonight. Baptism, all I can say is you're getting it right. Okay? When, when I saw this yesterday, I asked, I know, what is that huge thing in your church? And he said, that's the baptism pool. I said, man, you don't, you don't even know what I'm preaching about tomorrow. But the ancient Christian worship, one of the most defining things that you could do as part of your worship, was to get baptized, to stick up your hand and say, I believe in Jesus. And the most powerful declaration, the most demonstrative external way of doing that was to get baptized. That's how you got saved in the old days. You got, you got saved and you got baptized. There wasn't much time between that. It was one of the most powerful things and it still is. That's why the fight is on for baptism. And churches these days will say, You can go to church, but... The devil will keep us away from baptism. It is, we think it's some natural act that's going down. It's so spiritual you don't have any idea. So the spirit responds when we take that step of obedience. And it's, there's no more powerful way of identifying yourself with Christ. That's what Paul's saying in Romans 6. Just as Christ died, we symbolically die. And just as Christ was raised, you, you cannot identify with Christ more strongly than going through water baptism. Okay, so that was part of their worship. But let's let's go on to our first area, which is hymns and songs. Now, 110 after Christ, there's this uh, Roman governor called Pliny the Younger, and he writes to another Roman authority uh, called Tacitus, and he, it's it's basically it's the earliest 
uh, one of the earliest uh, documents that we have of secular, non-saved people describing the worship of the Christians of that time. And Pliny writes to, to his colleague and he says, there, there is this group of people, they get up on a certain day in the week before sunrise and they sing hymns to this man called Jesus, listen to this, as though he were a god. And so they are blown away that these Christians are singing to this man who died the crucified criminal's death, which they know about because it's only a few years ago. And they're saying, how can they actually do this? And so one of the biggest charges that were given to the Christians in that time of the persecution was, you need to curse God. You need to curse this Jesus. And if you don't, well, you go to the Colosseum. Want to talk about radical Christianity? Radical Christians? You found them back then. You found them back then. And one of the most powerful things that they did was they sang, not even to Jesus, but they sang about Jesus. And the earliest song that we have in the New Testament, we find in Philippians 2. I'm wanting to, to share that with you. Uh, this morning. And uh, Paul's writing here. And he says here. Have this mind among yourselves. Which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who though. He was in the form of God. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form. He humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on the cross. Next verse. Therefore God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name. That is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus. Every knee should bow. In heaven and on the earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. This is the, apparently the earliest hymn. That we find. In the New Testament. It's, it's pre-Pauline. Which means Paul actually. Is, is reciting something that they're already declaring. Paul, chronologically speaking, was the earliest writer of the books in the, in the, in the New Testament. We always think it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and that, that's the order in which they were written. The Gospels were written quite, quite a number of years, even decades after the first books were written, and those books were written by Paul. So Paul's writings are the earliest in the New Testament. And what scholars are saying is here, this thing he's, he's received... Just like 1 Corinthians 11, that which I received, I've passed on to you. This hymn, this song, they've, they've received. And he's basically telling them about this earliest hymn. And, and what I'm wanting to just touch on here for a second is, is the content of this earliest hymn. And the context is unity and diversity. The context is that there needs to be unity in the, in the church of Philippi, speaking to the saints there. But then he goes into this description of Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. I shared at my church a few weeks ago on the miracle of the incarnation. And what we must realize from a verse like this is, we must acknowledge and realize what the incarnation represents. What Paul is saying is here, 
Jesus was with God in the beginning. That's what John also tells us. In the beginning, God was there, Jesus was with him, and everything existed within him. And what he's saying is, is Jesus does not grasp, does not hold this place with God, something to be grasped. And what I just realized is, the power of what God did was that Jesus was in this place where he was receiving worship. He was God. He was with God. And just think about it. You are God. You are with God. You are Jesus. You are the Son of God. And your mission is to let go of that. You're God. You're receiving worship. You know what's happening in eternity. You've been there for eternity. And you've got to let go of your Godness, the glory, and take on the form of the stuff you create. These fallible, sinning human beings. Let go of your Godness. Come and be born through a human in some random little town where they don't even have a hospital for you. Jesus wasn't born in the mediclinic. It's not like he got some grand entrance onto earth and says, Yes, God, that's let gone of he's let go of his heavenly glory. And he chooses, he chooses to enter our broken world in the form of a human, to be constrained by our laws of gravity and hunger and all our issues, and to walk as one of us. I mean, I would already say. Praise Jesus for, for letting go. You know, that's enough. I'll, I'll praise you. Just letting go of your Godness, of all the glory that you are due, that you are worthy of, that you would enter our brokenness, our humanity, and just, just dwell with us. That's enough for me, Jesus. I'll worship you for eternity that you did that. Yet, that's not where it stops. It's not like he comes as a king, he comes as a servant. And he serves us. And Paul's saying, he didn't come to receive glory on earth. I would expect that like he had glory in heaven. Let him come to earth. Let's give him more glory. In fact, he humbles himself. He empties himself. He becomes obedient to the point of death. And he goes and dies a death he doesn't deserve on our behalf for our sin. And so the song is really powerful because of one word. And I want to ask you this morning, it's alright, you, you, you can speak back to me. What is the most important word in these two slides? We've got the, the first slide up there. Just have a scan through that. Give me some words. Humble, good choice, I like that. Servant, yes. Obedient. Let's go to our next slide. Come on, give me some words. We're talking songwriting now. We're talking about the earliest song to Jesus. What is the most important word, in my opinion, okay? What's the most important word in this song? Exalted is a good choice. Glory. Okay, you haven't got, in my books, you haven't got it right yet. To bow. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to relieve you from your misery. Jesus is also a good answer, but it's not the answer I'm looking for. 
Okay, okay, here it is. Are you ready for it? In my books, in my books, therefore. Why do I say therefore? For me, it's the hinge word. Paul's describing something, and then he's describing something else. But what hinges it is therefore. Something happens, and therefore something else happens. There's something else that's happening here. Man, that's glory. That's everything on the earth, under the earth, angels. That's Revelation 4 and 5. That's the praise party of eternity. It's, it's the highest snapshot photo of praise we can go and see in the Bible. It's in, in Philippians 2 as well. He's got the name above every name. He's King of Kings. He's Lord of Lords. He's Jesus Christ, our Lord, to the glory. It doesn't get more praiseworthy than this. But in the middle, there's a therefore, which means something happened before that. And the thing that happened before that was this God that let go of who He was and came and suffered amongst us. We killed Him by default as humans. And he suffers the death of a criminal, innocent man. And the other thing was, he happened to be the son of God that was sent through the love of God. Man, therefore, therefore, we will sing like we sing this morning. And we will carry on singing to eternity. Amen? So, the earliest hymns. If you want to ask me, what can we learn about ancient Christian worship? The earliest song in the New Testament about Jesus they got the fact that their worship needs a why. And the why is Jesus. If you want to know if you're getting modern worship right, sing about Jesus. Yes, we can sing about what He's doing. We can sing. We enter His gates with thanksgiving. We sing songs of thanksgiving. We enter into His gates with, with praise. We, we declare who He is, what He's done. But if we don't sing about Jesus... We're missing the point because what's going on in heaven, if you go read Revelation 4 and 5, there's a lamb that appears as though he was slain. And there's a question of worth. And when the question of worth gets answered, all of heaven erupts in praise because one is worthy. There's a focus on worship. There's a spotlight that's shining. And I want to tell you, it's not shining on us. I was in the UK a few years ago listening to Graham Kendrick. Was an old worship leader who's seen many things, and he, he shared this thing with us. And he says, Many years ago, the battle was for worship, just to get people to worship, just to get out of their stiffness and their brokenness and their tradition, and just to raise an arm, just to, to break out of the box and just, just raise your arm to Jesus and get over the embarrassment of that. Get over yourself. We don't realize we're living in a time 30 years ago, 40 years ago. People were restrained. I mean, you just, you just stood there and your heart was burning for Jesus, but it just wasn't acceptable to use your body and express your love for Jesus. It just socially was unacceptable. We've broken free of that. But the battle isn't just for worship anymore. Now the battle is for the purity of worship. Because along with the liberty and the freedom, we've got things a little bit mixed up and now we're also finding ourselves on the stage and it's not like we're stealing the glory, but we're tempted to share the glory. I want to tell you, there's one spotlight in heaven. And it shines one way and it's not our way. Let's never get the spotlight confused. The spotlight 
shines on Jesus and the one who sent Jesus. Amen. Okay, so why do we worship? Because Jesus is worthy. What can we learn from ancient worship? Jesus is the focus of our worship. Let's move on to our second point. I've only got two points. Invocations, that's a fancy word for declarations, okay? Now, if there's one pastor that gets declarations right, it's your pastor, okay? Sometimes he freaks the rest of us out and he says, come on, come on. Back in my church in East London, we like declarations. Come on, say this with me. He's biblical. If there's one pastor that's getting it right, if, there's, if we could go back right to the beginning, they sang less and they declared more. Okay? We forget that when we declare who Jesus is, it's part of our worship. So I love this morning. I love driving here. We're listening to the song in the, in the carts, this ocean song. <laughs> and we're talking about the bridge that just goes on and on and on and on. And Andre just looked at me and he says, you know, I love these things that just go on and on and on. Because it's like people don't get it. So we have to go on and on and on until they get it. Okay? Until they believe it. When we talk about lead me on the water and your faith leads me on the water, eventually we get faith to go out on the water and do what you're doing. Go pray for people and see His kingdom come. It's the same in worship. It's what I loved about this morning when, who was it? Stephen or who brought the, the, the word? Now some people, not you, but other people in church like to how can these guys just sing the same thing over and over and over again? declarations are part of our worship. When we declare something and we actually believe it, there is no more powerful thing. You want to know how Goliath was slain? It wasn't by the stone alone. I shared this last time. It was about what happened in the spirit just before the stone flew through the air. When David prophesied and this is, said, this is how it will happen. We forget that our, we don't pick up swords anymore. Our, our, our biggest weapon is in our mouth. When our mouth is connected to our heart <laughs> and we start declaring, how did, how did this earth come, come about? The, the, the word doesn't say God used His hands and with the skillfulness of His hands he, he shaped the earth. He spoke life into being. What has He left for us? He's left our faith and the, the tongue in our mouth to, to speak. <laughs> I want to tell you, the Spirit responds when we speak in faith and we believe it, we need to speak. We need to declare. It's not like something we figured out recently. They've been doing it since like five, ten years after Christ left. When they got it, when they got Jesus is God, we can lift Jesus up to God. And we'll worship Jesus and God. They started declaring these things. Now the earliest declaration also, given by Paul, not something that Paul wrote, something that Paul is bringing into Corinthians. And it's this final little part here, 1 Corinthians 16. Oh Lord, come. Maranatha, oh Lord, come. Scholars are pretty convinced this is the earliest declaration that we have of Jesus. And what you must remember about that time is there was genuinely an expectation amongst those disciples that in their lifetime 
the man that they walked with for three years, the man that they knew in a ministry itinerary, in, 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 in moving and, and, and going from town and village to village with Jesus, they actually expected that Jesus would come back in their lifetime. And so part of their worship was a longing for the one that they walked with to come back in their lifetime. We've lost that. We don't call out for Jesus to come back anymore. I think part of the problem is, mostly in the West, we're, we're comfortable with our lives. And we're like, Jesus, I just, I just want to build my business. And, and Jesus, I just want to get married. And Jesus, I just, want, I just want to meet somebody really special. And Jesus, I just want to have a few kids and then you can come back. Come on, I'm there. And through the centuries, the church goes through times of prosperity and then times of persecution. And when it's times of persecution, then we say, Jesus, come back. We sang a, a song this morning, and I'm just so blessed by that final song because it's, it's exactly the message I'm wanting to share with you this morning. I believe that the Lord is calling us in a time of general prosperity in the church, when it's going good, to even then long for Him as the bride of Christ. And we forget as the church that we, we're many things. We're the body of Christ that have been given gifts to bless the rest of the body, to build up the body. But Jesus makes it clear that we are the bride of Christ. There are two or three scriptures up there around the bride of Christ. God is always related to us as a family. He's this father figure that calls us as sons and daughters. We relate to each other as brother and sister. And we also relate to Him as the bride. It's, it's an Old Testament theme. When He speaks about Israel and their disobedience, He speaks about a woman that is unfaithful. Okay? It's a New Testament theme. There, there are many scriptures. It's an eschatological theme. That, that's a fancy word for saying the things that are to come. We are always meant to live with a reality and the expectation that Jesus will come back for us. We're not we're not just meant to think that He's coming back. We're actually meant to long for Him as the bride of Christ. And I acknowledge that that doesn't come easy for us these days. But I believe it's important. Now, I know some of the guys are sitting here and they, they're struggling to relate to the fact that I am the bride. Okay? But the Lord, I believe, is calling us to get ready. So if you ask me, what's the word that I feel for this morning for us as a church? All I heard this morning is, get ready, get ready, get ready. Revelation 19, let us be glad and rejoice and give Him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Andre said, I, I lead worship. I, lead a, I preach more than lead worship these days. But I, I've led a lot of worship in the last 20 years. One of the privileges of a worship leader is that you get to lead worship at weddings. Okay? And the other thing about a wedding is that you, you get a, a, a specific spot where you stand. Normally the dominie is standing here or the pastor is standing here and the, the bridegroom is standing up there. And, and normally the worship leader is here. So he gets to see the bridegroom and he gets to see the doors open and the bride walking down and he gets to see the bridegroom's response to the revelation of his bride. 
in the beginning I used to watch, but then I was crying too much and I couldn't lead worship. So after a while I just looked down. I just, I just wait until she's down at the aisle and then I'll look at the people and then I'll lead worship because that's what I'm there to do on the day. But every time, it just gets me, the, the holiness of the moment just strikes me. I'm not, I'm not talking about all Christian weddings. I'm, I'm just talking about when a man and a woman cut covenant before God and get married, He's there. He's a God of covenant. We relate to Him in covenant. The closest we get to understanding this bride thing on this side of eternity is by getting married and experiencing that day of the bride. I've got a couple of pictures that I I'm wanting to, to share with you now. Now, generally two things happen when the bridegroom sees his bride, okay? You either get the one or you get the other. If there's no response, I don't know if they should be getting married, okay? But, but one is like this. It's like, awesome! She looks incredible, you know? It's, uh, it looks like that. There's, a, there's another one over here. Okay, this guy's face is just about to crack from that smile. But... He is so, so chuffed, so impressed with what he's seeing, what's coming down the aisle. So that's, that's kind of on the one side of the spectrum, what the guys generally do. But then you get the other side. Let's, let's have a look there. Okay, okay. Now don't laugh because some of you did this as well. Okay? And so, so once, once, once the, the crying starts up here, when he's really into it, it progresses down to about here. Let's, let's go to our next one. There. And, and, it, and there's even a lower move. Okay. Responses of the bridegroom seeing the bride. I think there are one or two more. Let's go through. This picture just, yeah, just speaks so powerfully to me. It's just, it's just, yeah. Another one there. Okay. This, this is, this is where, this is where the best men get involved, okay? But I, I want you to see, I want you to see that it looks like that best man is he's trying to stop laughing there. Does, does it look to you? It's like, dude, here's your tissue. The final picture that this guy doesn't even hold back. He's just laughing. Why? 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 I mean, that, that other guy looks like a Navy SEAL or something. He's from the military. And those guys don't cry. What would move the bridegroom to cry? What would move him to that place of emotion where he's like, I know you're all my friends and my family and you know me the best, but today, man, I just can't. I'm just letting the sluice gates open up. I'm bearing my heart. What, what causes that, that moment where our hearts are, are bared in these moments? And in this case, it's the revelation of something. It's, it's doors going open and that which you were longing for, that which you were expecting, is better than what you expected. We're not called the bride for nothing. And I want to tell you there's a bridegroom that's waiting for us. And let me say this. He's also cried. He's also cried. He, he just looked slightly different. A while back. Let's show that final picture. 
It's what our bridegroom looked like. He's paid for the day when we will be reunited. He's paid for the fact that we have a ring on our finger called the Holy Spirit. I want us to remember that there is a marriage supper waiting for us. And what this speaks about is His longing for us and our desire to get ready for the day that we walk through the doors. What can we learn from ancient Christian worship? The earliest declaration was what we saw. Lord, come. I want to say to us as a church, it's time to get ready. Thank you for listening. Find more on Shofar East London's podcast channel. Let's do life together.